Get your official Adam Sank Show merchandise at adamsank.com. T-shirts, tank tops, mugs, masks, just about everything you can think of emblazoned with the Adam Sank Show logo. Go to adamsank.com to order your merch today. Thank you. I'm Jocelyn. Something I'm really excited about is my internship at DNR Studios. Every fall, DNR holds a fundraiser to help support their internship program. When I was looking through internships to apply for, I stumbled upon DNR Studios and was immediately drawn to it. I've always been intrigued by the entertainment industry, so I wanted to jump at the opportunity to gain some experience. As an advertising and public relations major at the City College of New York, I got to be DNR's first ever social media intern. Through this, I was able to aid DNR in creating a more unified and cohesive presence with all of its shows on social media platforms, thus amplifying DNR's image, audience, and content as a whole. Along with this, I was also taught so many other skills as well. Us interns were given an in-depth overview of the studio's audio and visual equipment, and even got a chance to troubleshoot. I also had the chance to work closely with a lot of DNR's other shows, which provided me with many networking opportunities as well. Although bittersweet, the six weeks I spent here have been so amazing, and it's an experience I'll carry forever. From the people I've met to the things I've gotten to work on, this has been one of the happiest and productive summers I've ever had. This was all made possible by the incredible DNR Studios listeners, just like you. What you can do to show support is visit dnrstudios.com and hit the rainbow donate button at the top of the page to make a tax-deductible donation. You can make a difference for students like me, so please, please donate. Thank you so much. Warning. The program you're about to hear contains highly offensive and indecent material. This is the Adam Sank Show. If it's in my hand, I'm gonna suck it. Powered by DNR Studios. And now... The one, the only, Adam Sank! Bottom. Yes, queens. Hello. Welcome to the Adam Sank Show, motherfuckers. We are not live, but this is a brand new episode. If you're listening at 11 a.m. Eastern on Saturday, October 23rd, almost Halloween, in the year 2021... At this old DNRstudios.com, the only place to hear this podcast live and throughout the week that it first airs. If you listen somewhere else, leave us your ratings and reviews. We love them. We got new reviews this week, and I am tickled pink. Um, yeah. Email me at adam at adamsank.com. Like the Facebook page. Download the comedy albums. Just do all the things. Please. Uh, what else? Oh, yes. Yeah, so let's not forget the ass hotline, 804-TALK-ASS. Even though this isn't live, you can call right now. I mean, you shouldn't. You should listen to the show first. But right after the show, you should call and leave a voicemail, and we'll play it on the air. And please get vaccinated if you haven't already done so. Um, our guest today is Jim Colucci, author of a new book called All in the Family, The Show That Changed Television. He actually co-authored that book with the legendary Norman Lear, and we'll be talking to him about what that was like. But first, I would like to introduce, via telephone, all the way from Bedford, Stuyvesant, Brooklyn, the inimitable Frost Pig, Ryan Frost Egg. Hello, good day, good day, good day. Here I am. Hi, Hi Ryan. Your, your phone connection is still a little dicey. You know what? What? I mean, this is better. I just took you off the Wi-Fi. 
Oh, yes, that is I don't know if that will make a difference, but here I am, ladies. Tell us what you're wearing uh, for this broadcast. I am wearing a T-shirt with the word butt on it, which is very appropriate for the ads. (laughs) Um, This is a butt magazine uh, T-shirt that I bought um, at a stoop sale that this couple that one of the guys is a chef that fucked me a couple years ago. What a great story. Thank you. But yes, wearing a shirt that says wearing a shirt that says butt is very on brand for you. Um, speaking yeah. of butt, our producer has a nice one. And his name is JB Versey, the Queen of Fuckery. Welcome him. Yes, hello, thank you. Hey Hoochie. How's your ass? It is fabulous and plump. Good. Good for mm. you. Um, once again, I, I still have COVID. I'm still uh, doing this from my living room. Ryan's doing this from, I'm guessing, his bedroom. No, only the study, J- darling, the study. Oh, the study. Oh, she's got a study. Uh, only JB uh, had to actually schlep into Manhattan bright and early this morning so he could... Uh, be our, our in-studio presence and make all of this magic happen. And so we thank you, JB. We thank you, dear Hucharella. <laughs> what did you say? He called me Hucharella, yeah. and I appreciate it. Hucharella. Oh, Ryan, your connection sucks. Name. Oh, this is R- terrible. Ryan, I wonder if there's a better place in the apartment for you. Um... We can give it a go. Because it sounds to me like you're, like you're slightly out of range. Um, anyway, we're going to begin this hour with a question to both of you, which is when you were growing up, when you were children, let's say, did you ever look at Playboy magazine? Um, I don't remember necessarily looking at the magazines, but I Hello? Oh, fuck. We just lost Ryan. JB, go ahead. So, yeah, my turn. Um, (laughs) Okay, so in my growing of years, um, my biological father was an actual whore. So, (laughs) Like um, a gigolo? Yeah, like I have so many brothers and sisters on my father's side. I have have 10 brothers and nine... I'm sorry, 10 sisters and nine brothers. I don't know... Holy shit, how did we not know this about you? Because I don't talk about yeah, my father whoa. and, like, his family because I barely know him. I don't know her. So that happened. Sure. And then my mom was dating this man in my formative years, which he never had porn, but he was also a cheating little bastard. So all the men in my life, they never had porn for me to access the Playboy. So no. And, Ryan, we lost you after, like, the first word. You said you didn't look at Playboy oh. magazine, but... no. Well, my only, like, um, yeah, I, I knew of Playboy magazine, obviously. I saw it in, like, the Barnes & Nobles that I would go into as a kid. But most of my, like, knowledge around, you know, Playboy was through um, that e-reality TV show, The Girls Next Door. Do you remember that? Oh, right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that so, was sort of my Playboy experience. Because I'm much older than you guys, I grew up in, like, the heyday of Playboy. Like, the 70s were the era of Playboy when it was at its peak, and it wasn't, um, it was no longer seen as like a dirty or a perverted thing. It was very mainstream. There were Playboy clubs all over the country. And sometimes my, we would stay at them. We'd go on vacation, like on a ski trip. And we'd stay at a Playboy club hotel. And my father always had Playboys. 
And I love looking at them, um, in part because when I was little, I was kind of, I was kind of heterosexual. I liked looking at titties and pussy when I was little. Uh, but also, it was just a very fun magazine. It had, it, there was a, an X-rated cartoon called Little Annie Fanny that I used to love to read. And it was always very provocative. It was beautifully laid out. And it was just like this hidden treat in my father's dresser. I always knew where it was. Um, and, uh, you know, Hugh Hefner and Playboy did a lot of good things. Um, as much as they have been attacked over the years, rightly or wrongly, by feminists for exploiting women, Hugh was a real uh, progressive, and he was the one of the first person to um, say that, that black people belong in all of his clubs and his resorts, even in the 60s when there was segregation. He refused to, to give in to segregation, and he had a TV special in the 60s for a few years um, and frequently had black performers on that special, and that was how a lot of white people first got exposure to black entertainers. But anyway, um, however you feel about Playboy, then or now, it, kind of, it, it barely exists anymore. The magazine no longer comes out. It's just a website. But Playboy is about to do something it's never done before and feature a man on the cover. And not just a man, a gay man. And right-wing Christians are freaking out. Um, actually, there may have been a man on the cover before. This is the first gay man. Um, He's the influencer, right? Yes, he is a, a gay Filipino influencer named Bretman Rock. He's a YouTube personality. And uh, earlier last, uh, early last week, Playboy announced that Rock would appear in a bunny suit on its October 2021 cover. This comes two years after the long-running porn magazine rebranded itself to be more progressive and inclusive and now includes more artistic photos of nude women than before the death of its founder, Hugh Hefner. Conservative Christians are outraged, saying that Playboy is promoting sexual degeneracy. Someone named Michael Brown at the Christian Post wrote, There's an old saying that sin will also take you further than you intended to go, from lewdness to perversion. I don't know what the fuck that even means. Um, Jennifer Roback Morse of the Christian Ruth Institute said Playboy has gone from degrading women to erasing women. These criticisms make no sense to me. Right-wing Christian groups never liked Playboy to begin with, disagree with the, the idea that, uh, that anyone should be showing nude photographs of women. So what the fuck do they care whether now it's a gay man or not? Like, if it's already something evil... <laughs> It doesn't make any sense. Um, let's see. This article yeah, is I so mean, poor. It's, it's just like uh, there's obviously no surprise that there's you know some backlash for this, but good for Playboy for continuing to you know be more inclusive. In and Hugh Hefner was always a proponent of, of LGBTQ rights, too. I didn't know that, actually. Yeah. Um, I'm trying I, I to figure out... the pictures. They, they look really good. I mean, he's a beautiful... Twink. Does he, does he identify as, as a he? I, I don't know. I actually. believe so. I think so. Okay. Okay. But yeah, yeah, he I must, because they're saying they're calling him a gay man. Okay. Um, Playboy says that American people, including Rock, will learn to celebrate a healthy sexuality. Oh, I'm sorry. This is one of the 
This is one of the anti-gay Christians. Playboy has helped swing the door wide open, and what followed was a flood of ever-degenerating filth, often at the primary expense of women. Uh, this guy says he hopes American people, including Rock, will learn to celebrate a healthy sexuality within the bonds of marriage. One man and one woman together for life is intended by God. I mean, this whole thing is just such a bullshit controversy. Rock himself says that it's surreal to be the first gay man on the cover. He says for Playboy to have a male on the cover is a huge deal for the LGBT community, for my brown people community, and it's all so surreal. On Instagram, he posted a picture of himself in the bunny outfit quote, to piss off more straight men. If you're pissed because I turn you on, then say that. Ding. Mm-hmm. Ding. Meanwhile, another Christian group is, uh, another Christian anti-gay group is in the news because they put out a YouTube video uh, that was then, they were then suspended from YouTube after putting out this video. This is for this group called the American Principles Project. It's one of these like so-called pro-family Christian groups that basically are just there to attack queer people and trans people and, and, and try to uh, organize politically and raise money. And so they put out this video and it's this young man and his, you know, supposedly his wife and like they seem to have many children in the commercial and he's walking around the house interacting with the kids and the wife. And then he starts talking about trans people and how, um, you know, politicians are forcing boys onto our girls' teams. And by boys, he means trans girls. And, you know, it's time to stand up for the family. Meanwhile, the actor that they chose to play this part seems not entirely heterosexual. So listen to this clip from the ad. You know what? Politicians are making it harder to be awesome. They're teaching our kids that America is evil, and instead of protecting our kids online, they're protecting the porn companies. Screen time's up, Bob. And now, they're trying to destroy our daughter's sports by allowing boys to compete against them. So what are we as parents to do to help stop this madness? We do what every other group does. We organize and we engage in politics. Who's looking out for America's families? So people on Twitter had many questions about the video. Joe in Wash, D.C. wrote, my gaydar just went off. Dude, you're just trying too hard to look straight. Laura T. Fisher tweeted, some people tell this, t someone please tell this dude and his beard it's okay to be gay. He actually has a beard, but he also has a wife who's probably a beard. Uh, David M. Griffith said, just FYI, if he's not gay, then I'm not. And trust me, I am. Hashtag gay. <laughs> Once again, this group uh, had their YouTube page suspended after posting that commercial. Um, and so Lauren Boebert and some of these other right-wing morons in Congress are saying, stand up to censorship and stand with the patriots at APP. Uh, the APP president told The Daily Signal, which is a right-wing news site, that YouTube's content moderation is an affront to values which underpin the First Amendment. It's un-American. Senator Tom Cotton, Republican of Arkansas, uh, called on Congress to pass legislation cracking down on monopolies like Google, which owns YouTube. Um, but anyway, once again, if you're going to make an anti-gay ad, don't cast a gay guy as the lead in the ad. And and make us, expect us to believe these straight. Just as I thought, trash. Trash. 
Brian, this next story has you written all over it. Russia has sure. launched its its own version of Drag Race, oh. not affiliated in any way with RuPaul or World of Wonder, but they have launched a Drag Race type show and removed everything gay about it. A copycat version of RuPaul's Drag Race uh, one of the uh, has been launched in Russia, which is one of the most anti-LGBTQ countries on earth. The country notoriously bans, quote, gay propaganda in books, movies, TV, and online. Um, and so, as I said, they've tried to remove everything gay from a drag competition. Uh, there's a, a, a host, Nast Nastia Iliva. She's a straight cisgender woman. Woman. She's the host, and all the judges are straight celebrities. Uh, six drag queens perform in the show's opening number, and the host, this straight woman, descends from the ceiling in a glittering outfit and takes center stage. Discussions about LGBTQ issues are forbidden, and contestants' sexuality isn't disclosed. One LGBTQ activist, uh, Nikita Andrianov, said, for me, this show has nothing to do with the LGBTQ agenda in Russia. Um, the show glosses over the challenging reality in which Russia's LGBTQ community lives by mimicking the American glamour of RuPaul's Drag Race, but only on a surface level. The program even opens with a disclaimer that it is not aimed at forming non-traditional sexual attitudes. But Russians are still complaining with, to the authorities that the show is in violation of the law. Earlier this year, a Russian printer refused to make BTS posters. That's that um, Korean supergroup because they could be deemed illegal gay propaganda. And also last year, Madonna was fined a million dollars for publicly supporting LGBTQ rights during a concert in Moscow. So the question is, Ryan, will you be watching Drag Race Russia? Absolutely not. I can barely keep up with the franchises that are affiliated with RuPaul, <laughs> let alone the one that strips it of all of the joy and fun about the show. I mean. This is just like, this couldn't be more Russian if it tried. Like, of course they're trying to, like, this is, this is absurd. And, I mean, I guess if there's no, um, like, mentions of drag race in the title, like, they can't be sued or anything. Like, I guess they, they can do this. It's an interesting question because if... World of Wonder could prove in court that, that this is their intellectual property that has basically been stolen. Um, they might have a case, but I don't know how it works in other countries because Russia right. probably doesn't even recognize American lawsuits or you know lawsuits brought against them by other countries. So I don't know. There's a small part of me that thinks this is good. Certainly not that they stripped mm. away the gay stuff. I hate that. But I think maybe this is a little tiny hole in the wall because uh -huh. there's no no matter how much they try to ungay it there is something there's always going to be something subversive about men in drag that is a subversive act and uh -huh. it's a it's a liberating act and if there's a, a russian child out there and i'm sure there will be uh, a gay child a trans child any child who who deviates from the norm 
and they see this show, it, they're going to be inspired. It's going to be make them suddenly ha imagine all new possibilities for themselves. And I just don't. Th I don't think you can take the gay out of drag or the queer out of drag, no matter how hard you try. So I think it's. I'm kind. I'm kind of glad. Um, because I think it might lead to greater tolerance and uh, uh, possibly safer spaces for queer people in Russia, but it, that will remain to be seen. I think that's a really, really good point. Um, it is important for it to exist, I guess, but I will not be tuning in. Well, speaking of which, uh, Ryan, as I told you last night, my boyfriend Patrick, who had never watched a single episode of RuPaul's Drag Race, has decided that he needs to know what everyone else is talking about in the world. He feels like he's missed out on a cultural milestone. So he has started watching every season, uh, from starting from the beginning. And uh, last night we watched season two, episode five together, which was Snatch Game. Mm. And he was delighted. We both season felt that... Two? Season two. So we yes. both felt that Tatiana did a remarkable job as Britney Spears. And that, um, and that Pandora Box was really fun as Carol Channing. Patrick, if you're listening, and I know you are, <laughs> I'm so proud of you, sweetie. This I knew is, this would make you um, happy. This is, no, it's great because I think that, and, and myself included, you know, I had to go back and really, like, make sure that I had all of the seasons um, viewed because there's such a, I mean, you know me, I'll, I'm going to watch Drag Race until every last franchise has been canceled from, from the air. But when you watch those earlier seasons, it just like, it has that sort of, it just hasn't been touched yet by the mainstream. It's, it's sort of that naive kind of like raw, um, just the roots of what of what this this major phenomenon is and was. So I'm well, glad exactly. Yeah. One of the things I noticed about season two is the queens are much nastier to one another than they are now because they oh, yeah. didn't know that they would be dragged on social media and you know have to answer to millions of fans. So they they are really vicious with each other sometimes. Yes, and I, I quickly, because I know we have to move on, but I'd like to add to that because I think, you know, when you think about reality television, Drag Race actually came on the later side because you think about, like, some of the shows that were out in, like, 2002, 2003. And so based on what was going on in those early days of reality TV, you, you, they sort of were, um, you know, encouraged to get into these tiffs, to be mean, to be kind of That's like... Right edgier in that way whereas now i mean i guess that's probably still encouraged but there's more of a there's more backlash um that the queens have to be way more and and there's actually and there's precedent now you know whereas there wasn't in season two it was just one other season that was really the experimental uh season of them all but anyway i could talk about this all day long i know well, the other the other funny I thing i noticed <clears throat> because that episode was shot in 2010 when they do snatch game, one of them, I think it's Kai, as um, Lady Gaga. Mm -hmm. She does a really terrible job. But when they're critiquing her, RuPaul goes, "We don't really know much about Lady Gaga. You could have done anything." Right. Because right. in 2010, we didn't know much about Lady Gaga. Right. She had just put Isn't out that like, funny? one album. It's hilarious. She had a couple so, hits. Totally. Yeah. 
Yeah. So that was like a time warp. Um, okay. Uh, the next story I first saw on the, the local news channel here, New York One, and it really kind of shocked me. It's just I've never heard of anything like this before. A female ex-duty police officer in the New York City Police Department is accused of shooting her ex-girlfriend and killing her ex-girlfriend's partner. The uh, officer has been identified as Yvonne Wu. She's 31. She allegedly opened fire on both women inside her ex-girlfriend's residence around 5 p.m. Both of the victims were shot in the chest. The ex-girlfriend, Jenny Lee, was only 23, and her new girlfriend, Jamie Lang, was 24. Wu had reportedly been at her ex's home in the Bensonhurst neighborhood of Brooklyn waiting for the couple to return. Um, Lee called 911. The operator said they heard someone in the background saying, that's what you get. When police arrived at the scene, the suspect, Wu, was waiting outside. Uh, One of the cops at the press conference said, I would describe her as calm, collected, and very forthcoming. She confessed. The officer has been with the NYPD since 2016. A friend of the former couple told the Daily News that Wu and Lee lived together until they broke up last month. I don't know that I've ever heard. I mean, I'm sure it's happened. I know there is violence in the lesbian community sometimes. But I don't know if I've ever heard of a, of a woman shooting her, her ex and her ex's lover. Have you ever heard that? Um, no. I'm... Something men do. Yeah, uh, this is this is shocking. And I never understand in these cases. Whenever I, whenever I see a tragedy like this, where someone goes and kills their ex, and a lot of times it's 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 almost always a man. He'll he'll kill his ex and then he'll kill himself, or he'll just kill the ex, or his current wife or whatever. What's the game plan? What do you think is going to happen after that? How do you think your life is going to be better after doing that? You know that you are not only ending someone else's life, but you're ending your own life. You're going to spend the rest of your life in prison. What, what, I don't understand the thought that goes through someone's head who commits a crime like this. I mean, you know, this can, this is also sort of, um, I've been thinking about this a lot actually because of, you know, the, um, Debbie Petito case, yes, and uh, it, it, and and just trying to wrap my head around why uh, what's his face would would make all of the decisions Laundry. that have been made, Brian Laundrie, um, and yeah, it's it's the same thing. It's like you have to think big picture here. Like you're you're by making by by yeah. making these kind of decisions, yeah. Definitely. You know, and, and let's, I mean, forget about the violence and the murder. Like, in general, my advice to all people is when a relationship ends, get over it. You know, move on. Heal yourself. Work on yourself. Figure out all the reasons why it didn't go wrong. Own your, your part in it. Don't spend days, weeks, months, years in seething resentment at someone else. That is just such an unhealthy way to live. Let it go. And maybe you'll find love again. But I feel like people have a tendency, some people, to just let things fester and they just sit with all that hatred and anger and resentment and, and it boils up and then they 
make crazy decisions like this person allegedly did. So um, just a tragedy. The, 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 the ex-girlfriend survived, but her new girlfriend is, is dead. You know, it's a 24-year-old girl. It's just terrible. In much happier news, uh, first of all, I, I have to ask a question. Did either of you know that the, the Netherlands has a monarchy? Um, I, yes, actually, I did know that because I watched Drag Race Holland. Oh, right. Yes, I should know so, that because yes, I, I also watched that. Drag Race. But before that. No, no. <laughs> you know, here, here in the United States, the only monarchy that ever gets any attention is the British monarchy. We know everything happening with the British monarchy. We know their whole history, who's married to whom, you know, who's next in line for the throne. But so many uh, European countries and Asian countries have royal families. And uh, Holland is one of them. And they have this Dutch princess, um, Amelia. I hope I'm saying it right. No, I think it's Amalia. Amalia. She's the heir to the throne. And... This is a strange story, but the Netherlands Prime Minister has announced that she is free to marry a woman, and that if she did marry a woman, she could still take the throne and become queen when her father, King Willem Alexander, dies. Yes, queen, literally. Yes. Now, why this is strange is the princess has never said that she wants to marry a woman. Princess Amalia is very private, and details about her personal life are scarce. Her sexual orientation isn't publicly known. But the Prime Minister, whose name is, I think, Rute, wrote, The government believes that the heir can also marry a person of the same sex. The cabinet, therefore, does not see that an heir to the throne or the king should abdicate if he or she would like to marry a partner of the same sex. The government did not weigh in on the subject of any children and succession, saying it's frightfully complicated because the law requires that the king or queen be succeeded by a lawful descendant. Uh, the prime minister said, let's cross that bridge if we come to it. Certainly, she's a woman. She can have a baby. She doesn't need a man. She doesn't need a husband for that. Um, the princess turns 18 in December and has also declined the yearly allowance of $1.8 million provided to royals. Um, that decision boosted her popularity. The, they're called the House of Orange, the, the, uh, the Dutch monarchy, and the cost of supporting the House of Orange has stirred controversy as the country suffers coronavirus-related economic issues. The Netherlands was the first country in the world to legalize same-sex marriage, and last year they wrote LGBTQ rights into their constitution. So it is possible that someday the Netherlands could have a lesbian queen, or a gay king. And From to that I say... the legendary house of orange. <laughs> yes, queen! <laughs> I, thought that was a cool, I thought that was a cool story. That uh, a cool story. And actually, I, I think I probably knew that about Netherlands, the, the Netherlands, but um, I had forgotten, and hearing it again makes it even more clear why doing Drag Race Holland was, like, such a thing, because I remember thinking, like, oh, that's kind of random. You know, at that when it was announced that they were doing a Drag Race Holland, I remember thinking, like, oh, of all the countries to do, that seems like a like an odd one, but they've been kind of at it, you know, for a while. Well, Ryan, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to get to male celebrities with the biggest packages. We'll have to do that another time, and we're going to bid you farewell now. I'm going to do the Pride update and then talk to our guests. So, Ryan Frostig, thank you for joining us once again. 
So long, farewell, uh, adieu, and all same. that jazz. Bye. Yeah, that part. Bye. In the, in the meantime, JB, hit it. Love really can take us there, and today it's LGBTQ Pride in Charlotte, North Carolina, as well as the Spencer Pride Festival in Spencer, Indiana. And then on October 28th through 30th, they're having uh, Pride in Savannah, Georgia. I think it's kind of cool to have Pride during Halloween weekend. I'm sure there's going to be fabulous costumes. Uh, And it is also Pride that weekend, October 29th through 31st in Seattle. It is Pacific Northwest Black Pride. So we wish all of them happy, healthy Pride celebrations. And now we get to go to our guest, for whom I am very excited. Our guest today is an author and freelance entertainment writer whose work has appeared in TV Guide, In Touch Magazine, and The Advocate, among many other publications. He's also the founder of the Must Hear TV blog. DNR listeners know him as the long-suffering husband of Frank DeCaro, but he's here today to talk about a new book he has co-authored with TV legend Norman Lear entitled All in the Family, the show that changed television. Here's a taste of that iconic sitcom. Uh, how do you do? Uh, my name is George Robinson, and I represent the Gay Liberation Front. <laughs> how do you do? This must be Mrs. Robinson. <laughs> no, I'm Cynthia Nash of the Daughters of Sappho. We wanted to talk to you about our candidate in today's election. Now, hold it, now, hold it, hold it, there. Uh, uh, let me handle this, huh? Read it. Don't you know what they are? She's a daughter of Sappho, and he's a gay liberator. <laughs> Step aside, will you, hon? Just let me do the talking here. Excuse me, get lost. And joining us now is the author of the book, Jim Colucci. Hey, Jim. how are you? Welcome. The audience goes wild for you. Where are you, Jim? No, in Los Angeles? I am in Los Angeles. How are things in beautiful Los Angeles today? It's sunny, and uh, it's funny with it. when they have weather in Los Angeles, it makes front-page news. And so the fact that there has actually been a temperature fluctuation over the past week or so is just crazy out here. How low did it get? Uh, I think it, the lows at night even went into the 40s. Ooh, perfect sleeping weather. Yeah, it was. It's been great. Well, thanks for waking up early for us. How did you have the good fortune to collaborate with Norman Lear? And what was it like Uh, working with him on this book? You know, it it was incredible. I, having done other books like uh, my book, Golden Girls Forever, I had some, I guess, some some clout in the space of TV books. And uh, the publisher came to me and said, would you like to do a book with Norman Lear? And I'm actually still currently working on a different book, but I was happy to put that on the back burner for a little bit because when else do you get offered to work with a then 98-year-old legend who really changed the medium that I write about? I mean, right. comedy is forever changed after All in the Family. Uh, it was wonderful. The, the I mean, I, there are worse problems that came out of COVID. I understand what I'm about to say is a little spoiled, but... In January of 2020 is when this was first mentioned, and I said, sure, I'll do it. 
Uh, and then, of course, by the time we started working together, we were into the pandemic. And so what I had thought would be, I had envisioned, you know, Norman, Norman Lear and I hanging out in person. And, you know, I had a whole montage in my head where we're swinging on swings and sharing a, an ice cream cone. Uh, instead, we were doing it by Zoom. But it, the man is incredible. And uh, we, I even then did get to go to his house and meet with him and dig through file boxes of folder uh, of photos and documents that hadn't been seen in 50 years because they'd been in storage. So I felt like I really got access to all the treasures of this show. But Norman is the main treasure because at now 99 years old, he is incredibly busy, has a production deal that lasts through age 100 and beyond, and is really just not just an impresario of television, but one of those people who you understand what keeps him going because he has this passion for understanding humanity and that's what is reflected in the writing and that's what all in the family really had at its core it was not just the desire to show liberal versus conservative or to bring up issues those were all things norman enjoys doing but it was also just to really get to the core of what people are and when you think about it, in 1971 when that show debuted, most not to denigrate other shows because there are certainly 60s TV shows that I adore, but they weren't about issues and about getting no, to I, the core of human behavior. I was looking at a list of the, the top-rated shows in 1970 before mm-hmm. All in the Family premiered, and you've got shows like Hee Haw and My Three Sons and Gunsmoke, and you've got... The Brady Bunch and the Beverly Hillbillies playing concurrently with All in the Family. It's just like All in the Family seems like it's on another planet. Exactly. One of these things is not like the other. And, and, you know, when I talk about 60s shows, there are ones I adore, like The Brady Bunch, Get Smart, I Dream of Jeannie, Bewitched. But these are not shows that were aiming to change the world, and they certainly weren't always showing realistic human behavior. A lot of them were about witches and, and spies and so all in the family that just shows you the landscape into which all in the family was born and how truly remarkable it is that norman and his co-writers and and of course these wonderful actors came up with this show and that cbs put it on the air it's just it's such a weird story that everybody took this chance and this big swing for the fences and it not only did it pay off, but it forever changed what we would watch on TV. Why were there three All in the Family pilots, and why did the actors playing Mike and Gloria keep changing? It's a good question. It's unusual these days still. I can name a couple of examples where there have been more than one pilot for a TV show. Uh, Big Bang Theory and The Love Boat are ones I can think of. But because it's unusual to do that as a studio in a network because pilots cost money and it's expensive to make a pilot and never mind to say to scrap it and say, okay, we got it wrong. Let's try it again. That's in digging the hole even deeper in terms of the investment. But, uh, with all in the family, they kind of lucked out in being able to do that pilot more than once. I've seen the other two pilots. In fact, they're on the all in the family box set. If you get the DVD box set, uh, and I do like the once other mics and glory. I'm sorry, Jim, you're, go ahead, Adam. Rick, yeah, you're cutting in and out. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, are you on the move by any chance? No, I'm I'm sitting in one spot. All right, well, I can hear you again. So go ahead. I, I heard uh, you were starting to talk about uh, Mike and Gloria being cast. 
Okay. I, I've seen the other two pilots, and in fact, they're on the DVD box set of All in the Family if you want to see them. And it's really, that I think those actors are quite good, but I'm not a casting person. And it wasn't just that they remade the shows to recast Mike and Gloria. And in fact, they, in the beginning, it was Richard and Gloria. Uh, it was that was they they only had that chance because of the politics that were going on at originally ABC, which was the network that commissioned the first two pilots. So ABC let Norman make the first pilot. They didn't have the courage to put it on the air, but they did say, "Let's try it again." And that's how as the show ended up being refined through this process of cowardice on the network's part. But it gave Norman more than one shot at getting the casting right. It's hard to even contemplate the impact that this show had when it first aired, because as you and I were just talking about, this was not in any way what American viewers were used to seeing. Here's a show that discusses racism, sexism, homophobia, politics, rape. I mean, they just there was no end to the hot-button issues. What was sort of the immediate reaction of the of of the American public and of the TV media when when the show first hits. Well, when the show first hit, it wasn't a smash hit in season one because it aired at mid season and it didn't air a full season's worth of episodes. So it came onto the air with a lot of warning. The network aired a warning saying the show you're about to see doesn't reflect necessarily our opinions, and they had to distance themselves from it because they were so afraid of it. And as Rob Reiner jokes, he said, you know, what kind of show does network air saying, you know, basically, we don't agree with this show. In fact, you know, you could not even not, not even watch it. Really ignore it. Right. Don't, don't take it out on us. And discouraging so, people. And no, yeah, discouraging people, which is hilarious. Do you think that the network is, is distancing itself from its own show? But Norman pointed out that a lot of times, he thought that that benefited the show because it was rousing people's curiosity. God, if that network has to say that, I better check this out. But still, in season one, it was not a smash success. But it just it benefited from the fact that because it premiered at mid-season, it ran original episodes straight without repeats and aired a little into original episodes a little bit later than when other shows were in repeats. And so people started to catch on. They, they caught on when the show did repeat over the summer. The show got some publicity in that first year by being Emmy-nominated, and they did a little skit for the Emmy uh, ceremony. And so it just it built this momentum so that when it came back season two, it was now a cultural force. But that first season didn't, as I said, air uh, to, to great ratings in the very beginning, but that first season itself was so brave, and that's one of the things I learned about the show by just kind of studying the order of these episodes that I had taken for granted, having watched them in repeats, I have written about other shows that have been groundbreaking. And as much as I love Will and Grace and think it's groundbreaking and wrote a book about it, I remember talking to those showrunners, and they were very cautious when they went on the air because right. the show Ellen had just, they people thought at the time that it failed because after Ellen came out one season later, the show got canceled, and, they, yes. and, and there had been a backlash against the show because it had been too gay and too, it tried too much. And so that was the environment that Will and Grace debuted in, and they were very cautious. And so they did some deliberate things, like even though Will is gay, they teased a relationship with Grace in the first season deliberately and had her in a wedding gown in the pilot, and then they also 
there was a wedding at the the end of the first season, and and we're with Will and Grace standing under the huppa, and they're kind of uh, professing their love for each other. That was all deliberate because they wanted to ease their way into America's hearts and not try to be too political. Well, All in the Family did the exact opposite because they were tackling big issues right out of the gate. And I, I remember looking for this book, and the fifth episode of the entire series is called Judging Books by Covers. And it is one of the first, if not the first, depiction of a gay character on television. So this is 1971, and yes, Anthony this, this is where Mike and Gloria have a friend named Roger, who yeah. Archie suspects is gay because he's flamboyant and kind of an intellectual and artsy, and it's played by Anthony Geary. Right, right. Luke, who would from Luke and Laura. play Luke, Luke on General Hospital, and then in the end, it turns out the gay one, the gay character, is actually this very hypermasculine drinking buddy of Archie's at, at uh, Kelsey's pub. Right, right. And the fact that a show that already could have been yanked by the network because they're timid, and is already an outlier in terms of television, had the strength, I was going to say had the balls, but let's say it had the balls to create a gay-themed episode as its fifth episode in early 1971, so it was written in 1970. I'm blown away by that, by that courage, and that again, I said to Norman, why did you do that? And he said, because that was an area where there's truth in human behavior, and it was just such a natural for us to tell that, and you know, you know, they weren't worried about the reaction. They were worried about getting to a core of humanity that hadn't been explored. He was and is, as you say, concerned so much with the truth. You include in the book an interview with Isabel Sanford, who played mm-hmm. Louise Jefferson. Uh, obviously, you didn't interview her. It was a, an interview taken from another time. But she says that when she first read a script... Uh, introducing her that Louise, her character, goes out to greet her husband George at the end of the workday and ask how his day was. And she read that and she told Norman Lear, black women don't do that. And so he changed the script. He listened to her. He listened to her experience. Do you think that's what made the show so authentic is that he and the writers were willing to listen to to the actors and who said to them, this is not how I would do this. This is how I would do this. That's such a good question. I love that you asked that. Um, you know, for for one thing, what, what Isabel was referring to was that the scene had it written that much like Edith, she ran to the front door adoringly, hi, honey, and greeting him. And that's what Isabel objected to. She said, you know, I, I mean, I, in her viewpoint, I can't speak to this, but in her viewpoint, black women won't do that. Um, what There's this ongoing debate that we are really having today, even more than it was ever had before, including in All in the Family's Day, about who gets to tell whose stories. Yes. And I can't solve the issue for it today. In fact, as a writer myself, I sometimes I see both sides of it and have, whose story do I dare tell? But back in the day, they didn't have that debate. And it, in a lot of shows, it showed because... If you look at the names in the credits for shows like Sanford and Son and a lot of quote-unquote black shows of the day, it's not black writers. It's white writers. And right. that's true of All in the Family as well. They certainly were of their time in that way. 
there were there were some women writers. In fact, Gene Stapleton was instrumental in getting women writers on All in the Family, where there weren't in other shows. Uh, but there were most of the I think all of the writers were white. But where they did really make an effort that other shows didn't is in, as you said, listening. When they did have people like the actors who were people of color, who were women, if it was a storyline about women, an issue of pertaining to women, they listened. And when they wrote those, the two episodes, there's one episode where Gloria is sexually assaulted, and later there's the fam- even more famous episode where Edith is nearly raped. They reached out to the Santa Monica Rape Crisis Center for advice. How do we do this, and how do we do it sensitively, and how do we say the right thing, and how do we portray the right moments, and you know the right notes of support, and and show what would really happen to someone? They did their research, and they would reach outside of the show when they knew they needed to broaden their own perspective, and that was uncommon. So the sixty-four thousand dollars question, Jim, is: Could All in the Family or a show like it exist? In today's hypersensitive, you know, woke culture, where there are so many rules and limitations on on what can be done and what can't be done, here you have Archie Bunker, who is arguably the star of the show, the main character, who constantly says hateful, offensive, ignorant things, and even though it's all done, uh, you know, for the sake of furthering people's understanding and tolerance, and 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 you know. Um, equity, it, could it even exist today? Would people would, it, would people get it? Or is it too there's nuanced? A, there's a section of the book in which uh, it's a Q&A with Norman and me, and that's the last question I ask him, could this be done again today? And his answer was, sure, I don't see why not. And I said, well, the why not is, and I just listed all the reasons you just listed. And he said, no, I understand why you're asking the question. But he kind of made it sound like, and in his viewpoint, it's a matter of political will. He's like, I understand why you're asking the question, uh, but if we all have the will to open our minds, why not? Um, I think he's probably being too optimistic, but he's got an optimistic viewpoint of humanity. That's why he's 99 and still out there and has so much pep. Um, I personally don't think so, because... As much as I do think it's great these days that we take into account the feelings of other people and stop trying to make jokes at people's expense or jokes about other groups that we're not a member of, I understand all the value of that, but it has had a chilling effect on comedy. And so I don't think that Archie could be any kind of hero. He wasn't necessarily intended to be a hero even in 1971. He was intended to for us to see him as the fool. However... It was a clever setup where the show bridged the political divide that existed back then, too, by the way. It's not brand new. Republican versus Democrat was particularly against each other about the Vietnam War and other issues back then. Uh, But the show appealed to both sides of that divide because you could either see Archie as your hero who says things that people dare not say if you were a Republican, or not even just Republican, because I don't mean to paint them with a brush, a racist brush, in that, especially in those days. But if I'm you were happy to paint them like that, yeah, I know. But even back, I mean, maybe back then they were a little different. Let's give them a little yeah. credit. Um, but if you were of Archie's mindset, you'd say, yeah, he says the things that people always think, or you'd see him as the fool. So both sides, liberal and conservative, could watch the show. If a show Do could you... capture that quality and bridge the divide, maybe. But I don't think that that's possible these days. 
Do you think All in the Family made America a more progressive nation? Yes, I do. I think that any time, I can speak just from my personal experience. The show debuted when I was a year old, so I certainly wasn't watching it when it first aired, but I did watch it in reruns and with my parents, who were much Same. more conservative than I am. Yeah. And, and it would bring up issues that we would talk about, and I would hear what they thought about issues, and I, and issues that maybe I wouldn't have come up with at that age, and I wouldn't have known if it hadn't been an issue, a, a viewpoint coming from outside of my parents, what the other side of it was. Or maybe and and have been given license to agree with that that viewpoint. It was also so, yeah, a time, it, it opened my it, eyes. But it was also a time when there were three channels to watch, and so you had most of the country watching this one show on. I guess it was what Friday night, Saturday night. When 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 Saturday. was the show on? Oh, it was Saturday right. night. Right. So so you had a national conversation going on around what was being said on the show, and I think that probably it had to have had an impact. Uh, in the time remaining, Jim, we normally play a game here called Ask Me No Questions, where I ask you uh, rapid-fire personal questions about yourself. But I thought in okay. this case, instead, I would try to challenge you with some all-in-the-family trivia. Okay. Ask me no questions. Ask me no questions. Yeah. And I'm sure this is a ridiculous idea, because I'm sure you know the answer to every single one of these. But um, let's, uh, let's try it. What was the bunker's home address? 704 Hauser Street. Very good. What was the name of their minister? Fletcher. Felcher. Fletcher. And what did Archie call him? Felcher. <laughs> when I learned what felching was as an adult, I wondered, like, did any of those writers know what felching was? And is that why they had Archie call him Reverend Felcher? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I wonder whether, the, did that term mean that in 1971? I don't know. Who knows? Uh, what canned fruit was involved in Edith's supermarket parking lot accident? Cling peaches, one of my favorite bits of the show. <laughs> in heavy syrup. In heavy syrup. Um, okay, when Archie was a child, he wore one shoe and one boot to school, causing the other kids to call him by what nickname? Shoe booty. <laughs> and what would they say? Oh, I don't remember what the actual taunt, but yeah, it was, it was, that was one of Archie's origin stories about why he, why he is the way he is, and I don't remember tootie, the taunt. Tootie Fruity, here comes Shabooty. Oh, God. That, when I was young, my sister and I thought that was the funniest thing ever said. We were crying, laughing, watching that episode, and we used to always say to each other, Tootie Fruity, here comes Shabooty. Um, well, see, it's written at many levels. <laughs> Who was Cousin Maud's favorite president? Oh, it would be FDR. Yes. And who was Archie's favorite? Probably Nixon, I guess, because he was so conservative about it. I mean, at correct. the time, you know, he, he lived through Nixon. Yeah, that's correct. Because B. Arthur says to him uh, on her premiere episode, she says, um, he starts mocking FDR. And she says, um, let me just say that one the only thing we have to fear is fear itself is worth 10. Let me make this perfectly clear. And Archie says, now you're knocking my president. Uh, okay, next question. During an operation, Archie needs a blood transfusion. And because of his rare blood type, um, the only donor that he can use is his black doctor. What is yeah. the blood type? Oh, I see. I was getting ready to tell you. Oh, is his black doctor played by Vinette Carroll? 
Uh, his actual blood type? Well, let's see. I mean, it wouldn't be uh, it wouldn't be the universal recipient. I don't, you know, I don't remember. I stumped you. It's AB yeah. negative. Okay. Uh, which is ironic because it's also his initials. Um, oh, okay. Right. Oh, that's funny. I'm going to give you a list of bunkerisms, uh, malapropisms that Archie uh, would always uh, commit. So, how would what word would Archie use to express each of the following? <clears throat> Gynecologist. I'm sorry. What was with, the last thing you said? Yeah, uh, I heard how, how would, the following. How would Archie say gynecologist? Gynecologist. Yes, dear Abby. Oh, that I don't know. He used to always call her dear Abby. Oh. <laughs> uh, diagrams. Diaphragms. Bank depository. Bank depository. <laughs> interior decorator. Oh, oh, shoot. What was interior decorator? I do remember that one. Uh, what was it? Inferior decorator. Inferior decorator, yes. Consummated. <laughs> Constipated. Yes. And the last one I hope you know, because I, I didn't write down any of the answers. I thought I'd remember them all, but I forgot this one. Uh, Episcopalian. Oh, I, I, you know, that I don't know. I mean, I, I don't remember, but uh, I, I know that he had not a lot of regard for the, their minister or, uh, or, or their, their particular denomination. Right, Reverend Fletcher. Uh, okay, yes. so we have just a couple minutes left. Tell In the book, you have this delightful section about the theme song the famous theme song that was written by Charles Strauss and Lee Adams. Tell us how that came to right. be. It was a case of, of Norman. Norman was always plugged into Broadway and uh, knew a lot of Broadway talent. In fact, a lot of the actors like B. Arthur and, and Rue McClanahan were people that he recruited from Broadway and made into TV stars. Uh, and so he knew some of their work. Now, they would go on to, to write Annie, but this was before that. Um, so he just he knew them from from those, that era and told them the story about how Archie, of course, because they didn't know who Archie would be yet. This was before the show was being made. Archie was somebody who just longed for the past and and just in his mind the past was golden. And so they came up with the, the concept. Those were the days. And no one ever could figure out what the last line was. The G R O great. Well, and they had to re-record that line because. And, and I, I've reproduced a few postcards in the book of, of postcards from fans from 50 years ago writing to him saying, I love All in the Family, but that line drives me crazy. I can't figure out what it is. It's interesting to me. I guess in 1971, even, no one remembered what a LaSalle was. So they well, it's, figure it, out what that it, line was. It's also a tough line to comprehend because it sounds like you're spelling something out. It sounds like you're yeah, spelling G-R-O. But it's yeah. G. Our old LaSalle ran great. Uh, Jim Colucci, yeah. All in the Family, the show that changed history, is available wherever one buys or downloads books. How can people follow you personally online? They can follow me on Twitter at Jim Colucci, and they can follow me on Instagram at Jim Colucci. I'm pretty easy to find. And will you give Frank DeCaro a big hug and a kiss for us and tell him we miss I him? I sure will. I sure will. And he'll, I'm sure, send you one right back. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Jim. The book is fabulous. Thank Congratulations. You, oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me.
Bye, sweetie. Um, you can follow Bye-bye. Ryan Frosting, Ryan Frostig at Ryan Frosting on Instagram and Twitter. You can follow JB at Stocking Anarchy Twelve on Instagram. Thank you, JB, for doing all this. No problem. Love you, baby. Love you. Uh, tune in next week, everyone, to our brand new ass. Our guest will be author Adam Smith, who is just out with a new book about the history of poppers. A subject very near and dear to my heart. Subscribe to this podcast at dnrstudios.com. Don't forget to order your ass merch at adamsank.com. Leave us those reviews. Follow me on Twitter and Insta at Adam Sank and at TikTok on Adam Sank Official. Email me, me, at adam at adamsank.com. The next time I talk to you, I will no longer have COVID. Have a great week.